0: The following program is paid for and presented by Skybridge Media, LLC.
1: Hi, I'm Anthony Scaramucci. Welcome to a very special edition of Wall Street Week. Today we're going to hear from Dr. Ben Bernanke and Professor Larry Summers, two of the world's greatest economists and most influential thinkers.
2: And I'm Gary Kaminsky. Today we bring you the best moments from our interviews with these two gentlemen who helped lead this country through the 2008 financial crisis.
3: This show has never been solely about investments. We've talked
0: about anything that affected people and their money. From Times Square in New York City, the new Wall Street Week.
2: Humble southern beginnings and a British private school. Larry Summers and Ben Bernanke came from very different backgrounds, but both ended up loving baseball, going to Harvard, and working at the White House.
4: I
1: want to take you back to growing up in the small town, Dillon, South Carolina. What was your childhood like?
4: Well, it's a small southern town, um, economically pretty challenged. Uh, when, when I grew up there, it was agriculture, some textiles. Our family were the uh, town pharmacists. My grandfather, who was born in Europe, um, moved down in 1941, started a drugstore, And my father and his brother took over for my, my grandfather. And uh, they were sort of like the town medical practitioners. People would come and ask them um, about, uh, you know, different illnesses and things of that sort and I worked in the drugstore. It was a good experience in many ways. It was a chance to see how people live in a small town and how, uh, how hard it is to make a living. Seeing how real business
2: works, mm-hmm. uh, you said seeing how uh, the struggles, what did that set you up for later in life in terms of that?
4: My father was uh, the town pharmacist and he, uh, he gave people credit. A lot of people couldn't pay right and uh... they would come in and he would talk to them about you know what they what they could pay and uh... it was a pretty tough pretty tough time and still dylan is still uh... had a lot of economic challenges even today giving yeah.
2: people the ability to borrow what they couldn't afford did that years later shape your thinking about interest rates and how the availability of credit is so important for the well, economy? Well
4: I, I thought about it because um, my father was a small businessman there were some uh chain stores coming in on the highway so he knew he's gonna get competition right? right so so he and his brother sold the main street store and they borrowed money to build a bigger store and he had to get he had to get a bank loan for that And I remember him talking to me about getting the bank loan and uh, as a small businessman he needed to have the access so, to the credit to, so safe to, to
2: say that that Years later, that did actually have an impact on you when you were thinking about availability of credit and what it means to the real economy. Well,
4: credit is critical. You can't you can't make an economy work without without credit. And uh, that, that was my my research as an academic. I studied that, and that was my concern in the financial crisis that credit was going to freeze and that people were just not going to be able to get uh, a loan if they needed one or or get the kind of uh, Financing if they needed
1: it. You managed to get yourself into Harvard and by the way, this is a fantastic book Uh, Ben Bernanke the courage to act uh, highly recommended I finished the book over the weekend love a lot of the personal stories growing up But also the stuff that you did at the Fed But let's talk a little bit about that. you got yourself into Harvard Mm -hmm. you had to save up to to do that What what kind of
4: jobs did you have in those days? You could actually, um, you know earn enough money, you know working whatever to, uh, to pay part of your cost at a place like Harvard. I was a construction worker, I was a manual worker, um, carrying cement and sheet rock and those kinds of things. I was really built at that point. I was in tremendous shape. And then when I was in college, I worked at uh, South of the Border, which is a, a tourist uh, attraction very, very famous nearby place. Dillon, yeah.
1: Even though you grew up in a small town in the South, when you got to Cambridge, you said you felt super comfortable. Tell us why.
4: Well because I was bookish. I was somebody who loved ideas and Cambridge, Massachusetts at the time, Harvard, MIT are both in this relatively small city and um, it's a place where you could uh, learn about practically anything. I remember f- spending time looking through the course catalog and seeing, my gosh, you can study Swahili, you can study um, French history, whatever you wanna look at. Let's talk about the uh, the title of the book, uh, The Courage to Act, how'd you come up with that title? Well, my wife suggested it. We talked about it for a while. Um, you know, I think the thing about the crisis and the period after it, it, it there were some really tough decisions to be made, very high stakes. And they were made in um, under great uncertainty in a very tough political atmosphere. And there were people at the Fed, people at the Treasury, the President, some members of Congress. Often the, the biggest, toughest part of the decision was having the courage to, to take the action because a lot of what was going on was very scary or very unpopular, and we had to do what we had to do.
1: Tell us a little about your childhood. Where'd you
3: grow up? I grew up in uh, suburban Philadelphia, went to uh, public school, uh, played tennis, um, had, two younger, had two younger brothers, uh, came from a family where both my parents were uh, economists, and so somebody said that since one of my parents, one of my brothers is a lawyer, and the other brother's a psychiatrist, that they had a lawyer, doctor, and someone to go into the family business. <laughs> I don't know anybody who
2: grew up in Philadelphia that's not absolutely passionate about Philadelphia sports. Uh, is that something that uh, you grew up as
3: well? I grew up passionate about the Phillies, Eagles, and 76ers, uh, 50 years in Boston. 45 years in Boston has moved out a bit, so now I'm a little bigger on the Red Sox <laughs> and the Patriots. But after I've seen how the Red Sox and Patriots do, I still check out the Phillies and Eagles. What
1: kind of kid were you? Did you get in trouble? Were you a troublemaker? What do you think, Anthony? I think you I had a little bit the, of everything. Uh, I, think uh, you was, I think you were frisky, I was, no? I
3: would not say that I was the wildest were kid. Were you on the, the, the valedictorian? Block. Nah, I wasn't that either. I didn't do enough, didn't do my homework reliably enough. Uh for that, but uh, yeah, I was in the chess club and the math club and stuff like that. That's it. Any uh, additional role models just growing up that weren't
2: necessarily career role models but just life life lesson role models?
3: I'm not sure that I exactly had uh, role models. I came from a family of very liberal uh, parents. And uh, I we went to England for a year because my father was on sabbatical. And, I was going to go to a private school there, and uh, because it was England and traditional, they insisted on interviewing not just the kid, but interviewing uh, the parents as well. And so the, my mother and my father and I were there, and uh, the guy asked me, headmaster asked me who my favorite president was, and I said Franklin Roosevelt. And he said, Franklin Roosevelt? And I said, yes, Franklin Roosevelt. He, got us out of the Depression. He caused us to win World War uh, II. And the guy continued to express that he was shocked. And my father almost lost his temper and said, excuse me, Franklin Roosevelt was elected by the American people four times. And the guy had served with a set of very conservative people in the war who hated Roosevelt, and he always supposed that Roosevelt was hated by uh the american uh people. A lot about bias far and- uh, far uh, from it i did I did end up going uh to to uh, that school because my mother successfully restrained my father <laughs> <laughs> do, do you think you've lived the American dream sir? I grew up in a wonderful uh wonderful uh household and family, and so I would hardly call myself a rags-to-riches uh, story, and so in that sense I'm not sure I'm the oh, classic well, American we, dream, we but I feel... up on the mean streets of Long
1: Island, so none of, no one suffered for us either.
3: But I feel incredibly lucky to have uh, had the set of opportunities uh, that I've had, and it makes me want to give something back to the country, and that's part of why I have First wanted commitment. to be in public service and to work in, uh, and to work in government.
0: Hi, I'm Ken Lango.
3: I'm Carl Icahn. I'm Ben Bernanke. Barry Rosenstein. Larry Summers. Jeffrey Gunlock. Dick Grasso.
2: Lizanne Saunders.
3: David Rubenstein. Andre Agassi. Jeff Smith. Lee Cooperman. I'm Dave Petraeus. Don Dravkin. Jim Chanos. Byron Ween. I'm watching Wall Street Week.
2: I'm watching Wall Street Week. I watch
4: Wall Street Week. I watch Wall Street Week. I'm watching Wall Street Week. I was a guest on the original Wall Street Week.
3: I was on the old Wall Street Week. And I'm pleased to be on the brand new Wall Street Week. And
4: I hope you are too. And you should too.
0: I'm sure you will too. Wall Street Week is sponsored in part by Hightower, an unobstructed view.
4: Imagine a business built on the premise that delivering straightforward financial advice is the right thing to do. A firm that places investor trust at its foundation, rising above the discord of an industry compromised by conflicts of interest. Hightower is the new blueprint for financial advice. We live by the fiduciary standard, a legal pledge to put our clients' interests first. Not because fiduciary is the latest fad,
0: but because it's what we were built to do. I used to dread getting up and going to work.
2: I was done with the corporate grind. I was tired of being
0: a starving artist.
2: And I started looking around for a business that I believed in, and I kind of wanted to do something a little more green. My
0: score mentor helped me take the first step.
4: He helped me create a business plan and helped me implement it.
2: They've really taught me how to think
1: big. SCORE helped me
0: to make the unimaginable possible for free. I'm here because of SCORE. I'm here because of SCORE. Get your free business mentor at SCORE.org.
1: Dr. Ben Bernanke steered the country through one of its worst financial storms. He talks about the tremendous responsibility of being the chairman of the Federal Reserve during and following the crisis.
2: Most people in the industry think that the crisis started when the Bear Stearns hedge funds collapsed in the summer of 2007. Do you agree with that?
4: Yeah, I, I think that's about right. Um, before that, we, we did know, of course, that house prices were, had been very high mm-hmm. and that they were already beginning to decline. They began falling in 2006. Um, we also knew that subprime mortgages and other kinds of lower-grade mortgages were not doing well. There were a lot of losses there. But what we didn't appreciate was that this was going to trigger a really broad financial crisis, a panic in the financial markets, and we only began to see inklings of that in the summer of 2007.
2: Were you having communication, or was members of the Fed having communication with the executives
4: that were running the various firms? Yeah, all the time. Not necessarily me personally, although I did talk to executives regularly. We had great intelligence about what was going on, but even people on Wall Street didn't have that clear a vision of what was what was actually happening.
2: I can still remember the Sunday night, mm-hmm. uh, being here in the city when uh, it was evident that Lehman was going to mm-hmm. collapse the next day. Uh, it feels like yesterday to me. Tell me about that night. What it was like for you?
4: We were really worried that if it failed, it would cause the financial panic, which was already pretty serious to go up another level and really create a huge problem for the economy. So we tried really hard to save it. What we did was, we used the same strategy we had used with Bear Stearns, another company earlier that year. And we brought two potential buyers, two other companies to New York, you know, to try to get some kind of deal done. So they would buy Lehman and take it off the market. And there was just too much, uh, too many losses. And so in the end, it failed, created a lot of uh, problems in the markets. But we tried really hard to save it, we just weren't able to do it.
1: Let's talk about, put it in the context of history like the Panic of 1907, or the the Great Depression in 1929. And your opinion of these sorts of banking failures and the impact that it has on the psychology of the markets.
4: Well, yeah, so so the the Federal Reserve was actually created uh, about 100 years ago, precisely for the purpose of addressing banking panics. A banking panic in the old days, it was just a situation where people lost confidence in their bank. And there was no deposit insurance before 1934. So people would line up, pull out their money, and the bank would fail because they couldn't pay everybody off.
2: I mentioned the Sunday of Lehman. I think Friday, that was the scariest day that I remember. Because that was the day where everybody was going to the banks and taking cash out of ATMs. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I remember local banks out on Long Island, where Anthony and I live, they were actually running out of cash because of the amount of money that was coming at ATMs. Mm -hmm. Was that the scariest point for you?
4: Well, that whole week, because uh, besides Lehman, besides AIG, besides a lot of other companies that were in serious trouble, we also had a run that week on the money market mutual funds. Like a lot of people have, you know, accounts at money market mutual funds. Maybe you remember in September, 2008, people lost confidence in those Mm -hmm. funds.
1: Tell our viewers some of the steps that you had to take.
4: Well, um, the first thing we we tried to do was to be a lender of last resort, which meant that throughout the entire system, uh, investors were just, you know, just running away from risk every way they could, running away from illiquidity. No, everybody wanted to hold cash. Nobody wanted to hold um, uh, credit. Nobody wanted to hold other kinds of assets. Ultimately, we would lend cash to the money market funds, to the uh, commercial paper market, all different kinds of markets and institutions, trying to make sure that... Uh, Uh, firms had the funding they needed to offer credit and to stay in business.
1: You're up at the Congress, you're having this first big meeting to discuss the crisis. Tell our Mm -hmm. viewers a little bit about that meeting. We determined we
4: were going to lend, we were going to lend $85 billion to AIG to pay so we could pay its bills and take its collateral, basically the whole company. We explained why we had to do it and why it was essential to protect the system. The senior senator there was was sort of rubbing his, his chin. He said, I want you to understand one thing. Nothing you've heard here tonight constitutes congressional approval for what you're about to do. He said, this is your call, your decision, and your responsibility. This is something you don't get a lot of credit for, but I'm going to state it here for the
1: record. In July of 2007, in testimony, you said that this subprime crisis was about a $90 billion problem. But when it started to contage, if you will, or Mm -hmm. become contagious, it became a bigger and bigger problem. You masterfully stepped in. And you took big measures to stop it from a more broader contagion. So tell us some of those measures that you you you, you took.
4: Well, you know, again, in the old days, it would have been just the banks and depositors pulling their money out of banks. But in a modern financial system, you've got banks, but you've also got securities dealers. You've got money market funds. We just talked about. You got commercial paper, which is another type of market, which is uh, where cash is lent to. To companies, so for example, if you're a Ford Motor Company and you want to finance your inventories, you borrow on what's called the commercial paper market. Commercial paper market was drying up; nobody would lend in the commercial paper market. The Fed stepped in and began backstopping commercial paper so that people would have the confidence to lend in that market.
1: And you were comfortable doing that, sir, because you had a longer-term view uh, than that short-term market panic.
4: We did it ultimately because we're, we're a public institution and we wanted to help protect the economy. In fact, every loan we made was paid back with interest, and we, we turned over lots of profits to the uh, Treasury, reducing the deficits. So.
2: You know, one of the reasons why subprime might have been underestimated in terms of what it was, was because there were so many products created by the investment banks to be sold. Are you surprised to this day that there hasn't been the kind of prosecutions that one would have thought against these financial institutions as a result of that?
4: We said against the financial institutions, and I think that's pretty much what has happened is but that the, the institutions right, themselves have right. well, fined billions right. and billions of dollars. Right. No
1: individual's been but, held culpable. Yeah,
4: for the most part, individuals, in a few cases, yes, but in most cases, no. individuals have not been held Fair responsible. Yeah. So I think it's, I, I, my problem is with the prosecution strategy, which is the focus on the institutional responsibility. I
1: want you to talk to the future central, central banker and say, okay, here's what I learned, and here's what I think you should be thinking about in your role.
4: Well, you have to look at the financial system as a whole. You know, you can't be looking at each individual little piece, which is a lot of what was happening. You also have to be very careful when things are going really well, when when the situation feels really calm. Then sometimes there's risk building up under the surface, and that's you got to pay close attention to that. But in the end, you've got to make judgments, and you got to figure out you know where the risks are, and if the risks are in. The financial system—you got to address those because that's really dangerous for the economy.
1: Richard Fisher, Dallas Fed Chair, said he was worried that because you care so much about the American people, it might be difficult for you to make hard decisions. Was it?
4: Well, it's hard for anybody to make hard decisions. But uh, we had a—we had a. a but he says
1: you're a super empathetic person.
4: Well, that's interesting. Um, I I try to be empathetic. I think that it's important for policymakers to pay attention to the people behind the numbers. You know, you're looking at numbers all the time. You've got to remember that these are real people, real jobs, real homes, real families. Um, But what I tried to do, and what we all did, my colleagues and I at the Fed was to try to do the right thing for Main Street. That's what we were trying to accomplish. You know, one
2: of the risks then was that these institutions were too big to fail or were too big Mm -hmm. and too interconnected. Is that still a concern?
4: It's still a concern, but I think we're making a lot of progress on that. They have to have a lot bigger equity buffers so that if they lose money, they're losing their own money and their shareholders' money, until for a long time before they ever get to the point where there's any concern about the solvency of these firms. If the government knows that they can shut a firm down without creating a broad panic, they'll be much more inclined to do that, and so the big big too-big-to-fail problem will be much less.
0: Sign up for the free Wall Street Week newsletter where we recap each week in the financial markets and dive deeper into Wall Street Week's most recent episode with feature articles and investment primers. Go to wallstreetweek.com and sign up today. Wall Street Week is sponsored in part by Coke Industries. We are Coke. From fuel to durable tires to the blacktop itself, we help make it all better. So if life is really all about the journey, hey, let's ride. We are Coke. Checking your fantasy league? Nah, just my 401k statement. <laughs> I can't seem
2: to save anything. I got a pizza for a todd. Hey, can somebody spot me?
3: When it comes to financial stability, don't get left behind. Get tools and tips for saving at feedthepig.org.
0: Before there's steak and heirloom tomatoes, a lazy picnic, or your doughnutty goodness, there's our commitment to helping America's farmers and ranchers feed a hungry planet, one we bring to the table every day. We are Coke.
2: Everybody wants a healthy U.S. economy. For Professor Summers, it's much more about fiscal policy than easy monetary policy. That is his solution for growing this great nation.
1: Okay, so 23 years ago you were worried about slow growth. Then you became a uh, distinguished policy advisor and the Secretary of the Treasury in one of the strongest growth periods that we experienced post-World War. Um, And so what what steps were taken? And are are we different today
3: from where we were 22 years ago? Look, uh, there's some things that become cliches because they're true. And one of them is that uh, the United States can't be in an oasis of prosperity in a world that is systematically troubled. And that was true in the early 90s when Bill Clinton was coming into office. That was true at the end of the 1990s when the US was booming, but we were worried about what was happening in Europe and Japan. And it's certainly true right now when you've got a lot of trouble in Europe, when Japan's not getting near its 2% inflation target, and when emerging markets are moving more towards submerging and less towards emerging.
1: So here we are right now, talk about fiscal policy for a second. What would you put in place now? Would it be an infrastructure
3: bank? Would it be? I would embark upon a 10 year, trillion dollar program of infrastructure investment, which would initially be financed by borrowing. And when and if there was evidence that the economy was overheating, would be financed by an increase in uh, the gasoline tax and increases in uh, the carbon tax the extra money people pay in automobile repairs because of excessive potholes on our roads works out to about a 40 cent a gallon gasoline tax. And so it's crazy but, but Professor, not one, to be making these investments to uh, do adequate public investment. But, but one problem I think that the American people don't
1: fully understand is the difference between good debt and what I would say bad debt The infrastructure debt that you're calling for would add to the deficit. But is it in your opinion to say that that would be good debt for the society to take on?
3: Yeah, I mean, look, think about it. Think about just this. Deferred maintenance is debt. Actually, borrowing money in order to do things today when they're cheap, rather than a generation from now when they're expensive, is reducing the burden on future generations. It is not increasing the burden and on and future just generations. So viewer,
2: just so the viewer understands, and I think you could probably articulate it, the counter argument that some would say, you know, be it at a Tea Party <laughs> or somebody else, what would the counter-argument be as to why this is not a good investment? Well, I
1: think it's it's hard for me to make the counter-argument because I'm in support of it. I I think think that the counter-argument would would be that we've got $19 trillion of debt and climbing and we can't afford to do this sort of stuff and we need to reduce the size of the government and get the government off the backs of the people.
2: I haven't had a chance to hear your perspective in terms of, as a result of quantitative easing, (laughs) the income uh, disparity, the fact that the asset prices have really benefited such a small percentage of the population. How do you square that circle in the sense of it was necessary but look what the result has been?
3: We've got a huge opportunity to push the economy forward using fiscal policy and if we push the economy forward using fiscal policy there would be less need for monetary and financial excess to try to drive the economy forward. And so the idea that, I think we do need to push yeah. the economy forward, but I think there's a better way to do it than with extraordinarily easy monetary policy. So the monetary policy was
2: necessary because the fiscal policy wasn't in place. If the monetary policy created certain excess in asset prices in a certain, you know, whether it's high-end real estate, uh, vacation properties, that's unfortunately, as an economist, you would say that's unfortunately one of the negative byproducts.
3: Yeah, I think there are medicines that are necessary for your health that have, adverse, that, have adver- had, right. that have adverse side effects. Long-term solution has to come on the fiscal side. I think the, it has to come on the fiscal side and has to come on uh, the structural side. So, uh, if we had a, if we had the right immigration policy, right. it would spur residential investment and it would mean we had a more rapidly growing labor force and that would mean more private investment and so it's not all about the public sector at all, but I think it is about having more investment friendly policies.
1: Feeling good about Pfizer, Johnson and Johnson or Amgen? They're all components of XLV, the healthcare sector spider ETF, which includes over 50 healthcare and biotech stocks in the S&P 500 to help add diversification and minimize single stock risk. Why invest in a single healthcare stock when you can own the entire healthcare sector of the S&P 500? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Go to SectorSpiders.com for a prospectus
0: containing this information. Read it carefully. Visit us on the web at SectorSpiders.com. You can join millions of Americans turning off the old media for Newsmax TV. We're in over 40 million homes on DirecTV Channel 349, Dish Channel 223, and Verizon Fios Channel 115. And we're available online at NewsmaxTV.com or on Roku and Google TV. Plus, you can watch us anywhere in the world. Just download our free Newsmax TV app from your iPhone or Android. Do it today and find out why millions are tuning in Newsmax TV for real news, better talk. Wall Street Week is sponsored in part by Morgan Stanley, where capital creates change.
2: What do Hawaiian shirts, cheeseburgers, and Harvard Yard have in common? These are a few of the favorite things of the great economic minds of Larry Summers and Ben Bernanke.
1: Okay, so one of the things that we do here at the end of the show is we play word association. And so what we do is we come up with a word, (laughs) and then we get your reaction to the word. Okay, so I'm going to start, then I'll let Gary go. Hawaiian shirts versus suits.
4: <laughs> well, I, I always wondered why you couldn't have Hawaiian shirts and still do a serious job <laughs> of policy making. But, you know, it's really hot in Washington in the summer, and people are wearing these three-piece suits. I couldn't ever figure that so out. So
2: Hawaiian shirts, then? That's Hawaiian shirts, choice. yeah, nice okay. and light, yeah. What's a perfect day now?
4: Perfect day is getting up, putting on my jeans and my Hawaiian shirt, and uh, <laughs> driving to the Brookings Institution and spending the day reading and writing and working on my research projects. Favorite meal? Probably cheeseburger and fries. Actually, All right, there you go, Warren Buffett meal. You had many,
2: many sleepless nights in 2007, 2008. Uh, I hate the question what keeps you up at night, but <laughs> does anything keep you up at night now?
4: Well, I like to say our dog, you know, because it likes to jump on the bed, but uh, no, I sleep pretty well. I see pretty well, thank no, that's you. Cool. So we
1: just want your first reaction to certain things. If you could have dinner with any three people that are alive, who would they be?
3: Franklin Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Albert Einstein. All right, favorite place to travel? London. Your favorite part of the day? Uh, dinner time. Best thing
1: about the Harvard campus?
3: Harvard Yard with all its traditions.
2: There you go. 2016 election? Democrats. President Barack Obama.
3: Strong leader who history will remember well.
1: And your legacy, Professor?
3: He thought hard to make actions better.
1: We want to thank Dr. Ben Bernanke and Professor Larry Summers for joining us today on Wall Street Week. That's it for today. You can check in with us all week at WallStreetWeek.com. Until next time, have a prosperous week.
0: This program was paid for and presented by Skybridge Media, LLC.